0: SECTION 27 OF FOUR AND TWENTY FAIRY TALES This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry THE IMPOSSIBLE ENCHANTMENT by THE COUNT DE Calus, TRANSLATED BY JAMES PLANCHET PART One. Once upon a time there was a king who was very much beloved by his subjects, and who was equally fond of them. This monarch had a great repugnance to marriage, and what was still more astonishing, love had never made the slightest impression on his heart. His subjects, however, pressed so strongly upon him the necessity of providing for the succession to the throne, that the good king finally consented to their request but as no woman he had as yet seen had awakened in him the faintest inclination to marry her he resolved to seek in foreign lands that which his own had failed to present him with and despite the severe and satirical remarks of all his countrywomen both handsome and ugly he set out on his travels after having duly provided for the maintenance of order and tranquillity in his dominions he would take no one with him but a single equerry a very sensible man, but not particularly brilliant. Such companions are not always the worst upon a journey. The king roamed in vain through several kingdoms, using all his best endeavors to fall in love. But his time not being come, he retraced his road to his own dominions after two years absence and fatigue in the same state of indifference as he left them. It happened, however, that in traversing a forest, he heard a most fearful squalling of cats. The worthy equerry did not know what to think of such a commencement of an adventure. All the stories of sorcerers that he had ever seen came into his head. As to the king, he was unmoved by it. Courage and curiosity combined to induce him to wait and see what would follow this strange and disagreeable interruption. The noise coming nearer and nearer. They at length saw a hundred Spanish cats rush by them through the forest. You might have covered them all with a cloak. So well did they run together and so perfectly were they on the scent. They were closely followed by two of the largest monkeys that ever were seen. They were dressed in amaranth-coloured coats. Their boots were the prettiest and best made in the world. They were mounted on two superb English bulldogs, and rode at full speed, blowing little toy trumpets. The king, surprised at such a sight, gazed at them with great attention. When a score of tiny dwarfs appeared, some mounted on lynxes and leading relays off them others on foot with cats in couples they were dressed in amaranth like the huntsmen which colour seemed to be the livery of the equipage a moment afterwards he perceived a young female as remarkable for her beauty as for the proud air with which she rode a large tiger whose paces were admirable she passed the king full gallop without stopping or even saluting him but though she hardly looked at him he was enchanted with her and his heart was gone like a flash of lightning all in agitation he perceived a dwarf who had lagged behind the rest of the company he addressed him with all that eagerness which the curiosity of love to obtain some information respecting the object of its admiration would naturally occasion the dwarf informed him that the lady he had just seen was a princess mudin daughter of king prudent in whose dominions they were at that moment he told him also that the princess was exceedingly fond of the chase and that the pack he had seen pass was what she hunted rabbits with. The king asked nothing further, except the nearest road to the court of King Prudent. The dwarf pointed it out to him, and spurred on his links to rejoin the hunt, and the king, with the impatience of a newborn passion, gave the spurs to his horse, and in less than two hours found himself in the capital of King Prudent's dominions. He was presented to the king and queen, who received him with open arms, the more graciously on learning his name and that of his empire. The beautiful routine returned from the chase shortly after this presentation. Hearing that the princess had killed two rabbits, he ventured to compliment her on so fine a day's sport, but the princess made no reply. He was rather surprised at her silence, but he was still more so when he observed that during supper she was equally taciturn. He noticed only that there were moments when she appeared about to say something but that either King Prudent or the Queen, who never drank at the same time, immediately commenced speaking. The silence, however, did not prevent the increase of his passion for Mutine. The King retired to the handsome apartment which had been assigned to him, and his worthy equerry did not appear overjoyed when he found his royal master so deeply in love. He did not even conceal from him that he was sorry for it. "'And why are you sorry?' inquired the King. "'The princess is so beautiful.' "'Surely she is all I could desire.' "'She is beautiful, I admit,' replied the equerry. "'But to be happy, something is required besides beauty. "'Pardon me, sire, but there is something harsh in the expression of her features.' "'It is pride,' said the king, "'and very becoming in so beautiful a woman. "'Pride or ill-nature, whichever you please, "'but the taste she exhibits in her amusements "'and her choice of so many mischievous animals "'are to my mind convincing proofs of a cruel disposition.' Moreover, the care that is taken to prevent her speaking is to me a very suspicious circumstance. The king her father is not called prudent for nothing. I don't fancy even her own name of Moutin. It appears to me only a softening down or a diminutive of the appellation which would truly be applied to her from the impression she has made on me, for you know better than I do that it is too common a practice to gloss over the faults of persons of her rank.' The observations of the worthy equerry were sensible enough, but as objections only increase love in the hearts of all men, and particularly in those of kings, who dislike being contradicted, this monarch the very next morning demanded the hand of the princess in marriage. As the previous indifference of the king had become notorious, the triumph of the charms of mutine was complete. Her hand was accorded to him, but on two conditions the first, that the marriage should take place the very next morning. The second, that he should not speak to the princess until she was his wife. On this occasion, the pretext for her silence was a solemn vow she had taken in consequence of the first thing that came into their heads, and the enamoured king only saw in this circumstance the proof of a truly religious feeling. Those great precautions formed a new theme for the arguments of the equerry, but they made no more impression than the former did. The king, after listening to them, "'closed the conversation by saying, "'It has cost me a great deal of trouble to fall in love. "'I have done so at last. "'What the deuce wouldst thou have? "'I mean to remain in love.' "'The rest of that day, and all the following, "'was passed in dancing and feasting. "'The princess was present, "'and took her part in all the entertainments, "'without uttering a single word. "'And the first he heard her pronounce "'was the fatal, Yes, "'which bound her to him for life.' As soon as she was married she threw off all restraint, and the first day did not pass without her having very liberally distributed a volley of abuse and a host of impertinences amongst her maids of honour. In short, the mildest expressions she made use of, in return for the most particular services, were characterised by rudeness and ill-temper. Even the king, her husband, was not exempted from this sort of language, but as he was very much in love, and moreover a good-natured man, he bore it all patiently. A few days after their marriage, the newly wedded pair took the road to their own kingdom, and Mutine's departure was not regretted by any one in her father's. The cordial reception King Prudent had always given to foreigners had no other motive than the hope of such a love as his daughter's charms had succeeded in inspiring, a passion which was too strong to pause for a better acquaintance with her mind and character. The worthy equerry had had too much reason for his remonstrances, and the king perceived it too late. All the time the new queen was on the road, she filled the hearts of her attendants with grief, anger, and despair. But once arrived in her kingdom, her ill-temper and ill-nature were redoubled. By the time she had been a month on her throne, her reputation was perfect. She was acknowledged unanimously as the worst queen in the world. One day that she was taking an airing on horseback in a wood near the palace, she perceived an old woman walking in the high road. She was very simply dressed. This good woman, having made her the best curtsy she could, continued her route, but the queen, who was only waiting for an occasion to give vent to her ill-humour, bade one of her pages run after the old woman and bring her back. As soon as she was in her presence, she said, "'Thou art very impertinent to make me no lower a curtsy.' "'Dost thou not know I am the Queen? "'I am more than half inclined to order my people "'to give thee a hundred lashes with their stirrup-leathers.' "'Madam,' said the old woman, "'I never knew exactly what difference there was in curtsies. "'It is clear I had no intention of being disrespectful.' "'How?' exclaimed the Queen. "'Does she dare to answer me? Tie her instantly to the tail of my horse. "'I will take her with speed to the best dancing-master in the city.' and he shall teach her how to make me a curtsy. The old woman begged for mercy whilst they tied her, but in vain. She even boasted of the protection of the fairies. The queen heeded the warning as little as the prayer. I care for them as little as I do for thee, she exclaimed, and wert thou even thyself a fairy, I would serve thee the same way. The old woman suffered herself patiently to be fastened to the tail of the horse. But the instant the queen would have given him the spur he became motionless. In vain she endeavoured to stick the rolls into his side. He had become a horse of bronze. The cords which fastened the old woman changed at the same moment to garlands of flowers, and the old woman herself suddenly appeared eight feet high. Then fixing on Mutine her fiery and disdainful eyes, she said to her, Wicked woman, unworthy of the royal title thou bearest i desired to judge myself if thou didst deserve the bad character they give thee in the world i am satisfied thou dost and thou shalt soon see whether the fairies are as little to be feared as thou fanciest so saying the fairy paceable for it was she herself whistled through her fingers and a chariot was seen advancing drawn by six of the most beautiful ostriches in the world and in this chariot they recognised the fairy grave looking more grave even than her name She was at that time the elder of the fairies, and presided in all cases affecting the fairy community. Her escort was composed of a dozen other fairies, mounted on crop-tailed dragons. Notwithstanding her astonishment at the appearance of the fairies, Queen Mutine retained the proud and malevolent expression which was so natural to her. When this brilliant company had descended and dismounted, the fairy Peaceable related her adventure to them. The fairy grave, who was very severe in the execution of her office, approved of Paceable's conduct, and then gave it as her opinion that the queen should be transformed into the same metal as her horse. But the fairy Paceable objected to this, and with unequalled generosity, exerted herself to moderate all the rigorous measures that were suggested for the punishment of the queen. At length, thanks to the kind fairy, she was condemned only to be her slave until she was confined. I had forgotten to tell you that she was expecting to become a mother. This sentence, which was pronounced in full court, decreed that on her recovery the queen should be permitted to return to her husband and that the infant she had given birth to should remain the slave of the fairy in her place. They were polite enough to announce to the king the sentence that had been passed on his wife. He was compelled to give his assent to it. What could the worthy prince have done supposing he had objected? after this act of justice the fairies returned each one to her own affairs Paisable waited an instant the arrival of her equipage which she had sent for it was a little car made of various coloured bugles drawn by six hinds white as snow with caparisons of green satin embroidered with gold one touch of her wand changed the queen's dress into the habit of a slave in this attire she was made to mount an obstinate mule and to follow at a hard trot the car of the fairy. After an hour's jolting, the queen arrived at Paceable's mansion. As you may easily believe, she was in great affliction, but her pride prevented her from shedding a single tear. The fairy sent her to work in the kitchen, after giving her the name Furieuse, that of Mutine being too gentle for the wickedness she was inclined to. Furieuse, said the fairy Paceable, I have saved your life, and perhaps conscience may hereafter reproach me for it i will not give you any heavy work to do out of compassion for the unborn infant who you are aware is to become my slave i will therefore remove you from the kitchen and set you only the task of sweeping my apartment and combing my little dog christine furios knew there was no opposition to be made to these commands she took therefore the sensible course of doing exactly as she was bid as long as she was able. After some time she gave birth to a princess, as lovely as day, and when her health was re-established, the fairy lectured her severely, respecting her past life, extracted from her a promise to behave better in future, and sent her back to the king her husband. One may imagine, from the kindness shown by the fairy Paceable, to so wicked a woman, what affectionate care she would take of the young princess who was left in her hands. She soon perfectly doted on her, and determined to have her endowed by two fairies besides herself. She was a long time deciding on the two godmothers she should select, for she feared that the resentment they all felt against the mother might be extended to the child. At length she thought that the fairies divertisant and Evele were amongst the best-natured of them, and invited them accordingly. They arrived in a berlin made of Italian flowers drawn by six grey ponies with beautiful flame-coloured manes evelet's robe was composed of parrot's feathers and her hair was dressed en chenfou. footnote literally mad dog fashion one of the many extravagant whims of the day footnote the fairy divertisante had a robe of chameleon skin which made her appear alternately in every imaginable colour paisible gave them both a capital reception and to ensure their good offices I have been confidently informed that during the excellent supper they sat down to she managed to make them just merry enough with wine. Having taken this wise precaution she had the lovely infant brought to them. It was in a cradle of rock crystal and swathed in clothes of scarlet embroidered with gold, but its beauty was a hundred times more brilliant than its apparel. The young princess smiled at the fairies and made little attempts to kiss them which so pleased them that they determined to place her, as far as it laid in their power, beyond the reach of the anger of their elders. They began by giving her the name of Galantine. The fairy peaceable then said to them, You know that the punishments we fairies usually inflict consist in changing beauty to ugliness, intellect to imbecility, and in many cases resorting to transformation. Now, as it is impossible for us to endow her with more than one gift each, my advice is that one of you should bestow upon her beauty, the other intelligence, and that I, for my part, should render it impossible for any one to change her form. This advice was adopted and followed upon the spot. As soon as Galantine was endowed, the two fairies took their leave, and Pacible gave all her attention to the education of the little princess. Never was such attention so well rewarded, for at four years of age, her grace and beauty had already begun to make a noise in the world. In fact, they made too much noise, for the circumstance of the case having been reported to the Council of Fairies, peaceable one morning saw the fairy grave enter the courtyard of the palace, mounted on a lion. She wore a long robe, very full, and consequently very much pleated, of sky-blue colour, and on her head a square cap of gold brocade. Paisable recognised her with as much anxiety as vexation, for her dress and the animal she rode proved that she came to promulgate some decree, but when she perceived that she was followed by the fairy Revus, mounted on a unicorn, and dressed in black Morocco, faced with changeable taffeta, and wearing also a square cap, she no longer doubted that this visit had some very serious object. In short, Fairy Grave, opening the business, said to her, I am much surprised at the conduct you have pursued towards Moutines. It is in the name of the whole body of fairies, whom she has insulted, that I come to reprimand you. You were at liberty to forgive her offences to yourself, but you had no right to pardon her for those which she had committed against the entire community. Nevertheless, you treated her with mildness and kindness during the time she resided with you. I therefore come to do strict justice, and punish an innocent child for the acts of a guilty mother. You have endowed her with beauty and intelligence and you have also raised an obstacle against her transformation. But though I cannot deprive her of the gifts you have bestowed upon her, I know how to prevent her deriving any advantage from them as long as she lives. She shall never be able to get out of an enchanted prison which I am about to build for her, until she shall find herself in the arms of a lover who is beloved by her. It is my business to take care that such an event shall never occur. The enchantment consisted of a tower of great height and size, built of shells of all colours in the middle of the sea. On the lowest floor there was a great bathroom, into which the water could be admitted at pleasure. The bath was surrounded by steps and slabs, on which you could walk with dry feet. The first floor was devoted to the apartment of the princess, and it was really a magnificent affair. The second was divided into several rooms, In one you saw a fine library, in another a wardrobe full of beautiful linen and superb dresses for all ages, each more splendid than the other. A third was appropriated to music, a fourth was entirely filled with the most agreeable wines and liqueurs, and in the last, which was the largest of all, nothing was to be seen but wet and dry sweetmeats, and preserves of every description, and all sorts of pies and patties which by the power of the enchantment were kept always as warm as they were when first taken out of the oven. The tower was terminated by a platform, on which there was a garden laid out full of the finest flowers, which were renewed and succeeded each other unceasingly. In this garden was also seen a fruit-tree of each sort, on which, as fast as you gathered one fruit, another appeared in its place. This lovely spot was ornamented by green arbours, rendered delicious by the shade and fragrance of the flowering shrubs that formed them and the songs of the thousand birds that frequented them when the fairies had placed galantine in the tower with a governess named bonnet they remounted the whale that had taken them there and retiring a certain distance from this grand edifice fairy grave by a tap of her wand on the water assembled two thousand of the most ferocious sharks in the ocean and ordered them to keep strict watch around the tower and tear in pieces every mortal who should be rash enough to approach it but as ships are not much afraid of sharks she also sent for a quantity of remoras footnote that is the sea lamprey a small fish that by adhering to the keels of ships was supposed to have the power of stopping them or at least of retarding their progress End of footnote. and commanded them to form an advanced guard and stop without exception every vessel that by design or accident shaped its course in that direction fairy grave felt so fatigued with having done so much in so short a time that she requested fairy revus to fly to the top of the tower and enchant the air about it so powerfully and completely that not even a bird should be able to go near it the fairy obeyed but as she was an exceedingly absent being she forgot some of the necessary ceremonies and made some few mistakes If the enchantment of the water had not been more perfect than that of the air, the safekeeping of Galantine, which they took so much trouble about, would have been greatly endangered by sea. The good governess occupied every instant of her time in the proper education of Galantine, and although she looked upon all the accomplishments that the princess acquired as completely thrown away on one who would never have an opportunity of displaying them to the world, she neglected nothing that could tend to the improvement of her mind. And the cultivation of her talents in all imaginable arts and sciences. When the princess had attained the age of twelve, she appeared to the governess a perfect prodigy. All the fine qualities she discovered in her caused her deeply to deplore the sad fate imposed on so amiable a person. Galantine, who knew nothing about herself, perceiving her one day more melancholy than usual, entreated to know the reason of it so urgently, that Bonnet related to her all her own history, and that of the Queen her mother. Galantine was thunderstruck at this recital. I had never before, she exclaimed, reflected on my position. I fancied that when I was old enough I should leave this retreat. But if I am condemned never to do so, of what value is life to me? Better surely would it be for me to die. The princess, after this burst of grief, remained silent for some time then added, You say, my dear Bonnet, that the spell which is cast upon me cannot be broken until I shall love someone who loves me? Is this so difficult a matter? I don't know what it may be, but I would endure anything that could assist to release me from this prison. Bonnet could not help smiling at the simplicity of Galantine, and then answered, To love and to be beloved, it is necessary that some young prince should enter this tower to see and be seen by you, and that he should be one who intends to marry you, otherwise his appearance here would not be correct. Now you know that it is not possible for any man to approach these walls. Have I not told you all the precautions that have been taken by sea and by sky? You must therefore, my dear Galantine, make up your mind to pass your days in this solitude. This conversation produced a great change in the princess. No amusements had charms for her any longer. Her melancholy became excessive. She passed her days in weeping and in devising plans to escape from the tower. One day that the princess was sitting in her balcony, she saw an extraordinary figure emerge from the water. She called Bonnet immediately to come and observe it. It had the appearance of a man with a bluish countenance and ill-curled hair of a sea-green colour. He approached the tower, "'and the Sharks made no opposition to his progress. "'In my opinion,' said the governess, "'it is a merman.' "'A man, do you say?' exclaimed Galantine. "'Let us go down to the gate of the tower. "'We shall see him better there.' "'As soon as they reached the gate, "'the merman stopped to gaze on the princess, "'and at her sight made several signs of admiration. "'He said something to her in his very hoarse voice, "'but as he found his language was not understood,' he had recourse again to signs. He had in his hand a little rush-basket, filled with the rarest shells. He presented it to the princess, who took it, and in her turn made signs to thank him. But as night was coming on, she retired, and the merman plunged under water. As soon as Galantine had reached her own apartment, she said to her governess sorrowfully, "'I think that man frightful.' Why did the villainous sharks who guard me allow such an ugly man to pass them in preference to one who was better looking, for I suppose they are not all like him. Not any like him, I should say, replied Bonnet, and as to the sharks allowing him to pass, I presume that, being inhabitants of the same element, they do not harm each other. They may even be his relations, or at least friends. End of Part one End of Section twenty seven